The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study in this fourth gospel and uh, beginning chapter 8 this morning. This is our 45th message in the gospel, this gospel. I think that's pretty good, seven chapters in less than a year. You know, that's, that's moving along at a good speed, I think, for me. <laughs> but you know, not everyone feels like I do. I, I don't do this often because it's irritating, but there's times when I like to read the comments on the YouTube videos. <laughs> it, it often is a mistake. But one guy wrote on one of the YouTube videos, he said this, I don't think anyone who takes an hour to go over 11 verses is worth listening to. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder what he would say if he read my stuff or listened to the stuff on John 1.14. Because on 1.14, I spent two hours on half a verse. Okay? So I certainly wouldn't be worth listening to, you know? Now, <laughs> I'm painfully aware that most people within churchianity and I use that term churchianity, not Christianity, but within churchianity, don't want in-depth teaching of the Bible. I mean, most people just don't want it. They don't care about that, all right? But I'm thankful for those of you who do, and I'm thankful for there are people out there who are hungry. They want to know, what does the Bible say? They want to study it. You know, the Bible is the living Word of God, and we do well to spend time in it, to learn it, to meditate on it, to, to study it. And I'm thankful for those of you who are interested in doing that. All right. Well, chapter 7, if you remember, opens by Yeshua saying that he's unwilling to go to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. All right, he's in Galilee at the time, and his brothers are saying, hey, you need to go down to the feast. And he is not, I'm not going to go down to the feast. And so they go without him. All right. And basically, in the beginning of chapter 7, he's still in Galilee. But he, you know, it's the verse there, the verses, first 13 verses, they're kind of a transition. He's heading off to Jerusalem. Now, let me remind you again that the events of chapter 7 and 8 take place where? Okay, they're taking place in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He's in the temple during this time. He's teaching in the temple. And what's happening in the temple at this time? It is the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the pilgrims' feasts. People are required to come to this, so the place is very crowded. So the context and the setting of chapter 7 and 8 are Yeshua's visit to the temple during the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, Yeshua's in the temple, and He's teaching the people at Jerusalem, and all of a sudden this group says, hey, isn't this the guy that they're trying to kill? In other words, there's a lot of confusion there, like, the leaders are trying to kill him, and he's standing here openly, publicly teaching. What's, what's up with that? You know, they don't get it. How come they're not taking him? You know, they want to kill him, but they don't seem to be able to do it. On the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, during the ceremony of the water libation, Yeshua stands up and he yells out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, this is a universal call to the thirsty. If you're thirsty, if you have a desire, you realize you have a need, come. What does it mean to come to Yeshua and drink? It's, he's simply saying the same thing as believing in Him. To come to Him is to believe in Him. We saw that earlier in this study. To believe in Him is to come to Him. Coming and drinking is what it means to believe. That's what believe means. Yeshua is calling men to salvation. But there's a prerequisite, you've got to be thirsty. Because if you're not thirsty, you're not going to come. And Yeshua promises them supernatural living water. What He promises is what the 6th century B.C. prophet Zechariah foretold in Zechariah chapters 9-14. through In the setting, in Zechariah, the same setting, the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. And Zechariah describes the triumphant entry of Yahweh's Messiah, the king, as he comes to Jerusalem riding on a donkey in 9.9. And he tells of when Yahweh will open up a fountain for the house of David to cleanse Jerusalem in 13.1. 1. 
The living waters will flow out from Jerusalem and restore and replenish the earth. 14.8 And all nations will come to Yahweh to celebrate the feast in 14.6. This is, he is fulfilling these prophecies. And just as in the Exodus journey when the supernatural water flowed from the rock in the wilderness, now Yeshua tells the people of God in the setting of the Feast of Tabernacles that they all they have to do is come. The water is there. Come to the water that flows here from the Lamb of God. Then Yeshua engages them in chapter 7 in this long debate. He gets in this debate with the Jewish leaders and the people are there listening. you got the multitude. you got the scribes and the Pharisees. and The disciples are there. And the Jewish leaders, they're not doing too well in the debate. So in verse 32, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. This happens in the middle of the week. And at the end of the week, they come back and the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and they said to them, why didn't you bring him? So they sent out to arrest him. They returned three days later empty-handed and it seemed the guards were taken, if you were, they were smitten by the Lord. They listened to him. They forgot they were sent out to arrest him. 46 says, the officers answered, never has a man spoken like this man speaks. We've never heard anybody like this. These guards are so taken back, they just forget what they're there to do. They didn't even try to hide it. They readily admit, well, we failed in our mission. <laughs> we totally blew it. We're, we're just sitting there listening to them. We were enjoying it. And in spite of all the efforts of these men to arrest Yeshua or to publicly expose Him as a fraud, no one's able to do it. They can't do it. And they can't do it because the Bible says it's not His time. It's not time for it to happen yet. Alright, we ended our study last time with this verse. It says, they answered Him, you're not also from Galilee, are you? I'm talking to Nicodemus here, because Nicodemus defended the Lord. He kind of sticks up, wait a minute, we, can't, we don't judge a man like that. And then they said, oh, you from Galilee? That's an insult. Okay, you a hick from the backwoods up there also? And then they say, search the Scriptures, no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's a lie. There are many prophets came from Galilee. They're confused or they're, you know, they're just so upset. They're, you know, when people want to win an argument, a lot of times they don't even get logical. They just throw stuff out, and if that doesn't work, then they just start attacking you. That's what they're doing to Nicodemus. They're just attacking him. You hick? You from Galilee also? So that's where we ended last time. You know, and when I ended it, David came up to me and he goes, well, you left off the last verse in the chapter. I'm like, we're not done yet. Okay? We're not done yet. Because the next verse, the last verse of the chapter is that everyone went to his home. What stands out about this verse to you? All right, you see that bracket at the beginning? This is kind of weird here because why they had a chapter division there, I don't know. You know, this verse should be part of chapter 8, I guess. You know, where does the bracket end? Anybody know? 8.11, okay. So, from 53 to verse 11, that's in brackets. What does that mean? Right. There's, there's textual problems here. They're saying this is bracketed because like, we don't really think this belongs here. See, in most Bibles, John 7.53 to 8.11 is either set off in brackets, as it is in the New American here, or it's a footnote. Now, I couldn't find an English translation that didn't have it. Okay? In other words, it's in all the English translations, but they you know, usually let you know there's something going on here. And the reason for that is that most New Testament scholars don't think this was originally part of the Gospel all right, that John wrote. Leon Morris, a highly respected evangelical scholar, writes this, The textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of the Gospel. Now Morris goes on to give this explanation. He said the reason probably is that in a day when the punishment for sexual sin was very severe among the Christians, this story was thought to be too easily misinterpreted as continuancing unchastity. When ecclesiastical discipline was somewhat relaxed, the story was circulated more widely and with a greater measure of official sanction. So he thinks, you know, ah, maybe they pulled this out because it 
didn't seem to fit their theology. Now, Augustine and Ambrose, in the late 4th, early 5th centuries, both believed the story may have been omitted because it seems to suggest that Yeshua condoned adultery. So some people think, well, they, this was in there, and they yanked it out, you know, early. Now, Don Carson, who was probably one of the best New Testament scholars, wrote this. He just, despite the best efforts to prove that this narrative was originally part of John's Gospel, the evidence is against them. And modern English versions are right to rule it off from the rest of the text, NIV, or to regulate it to a footnote, RSV. Now, Bruce Metzger, who is one of the greatest authorities on the text of the New Testament, he died in 2002, he writes this, The evidence for the non-Johannian origin of the periscope of adulteresses is overwhelming. So he says, it's just not, the text is just not there. Now, Herman Ritterboss writes this, the evidence points to unstable tradition that was originally part of the ecclesiastical accepted text. And then John Calvin has this to say, it is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches. And some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. And there's a lot of talk about that. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there's no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. Now, I like Calvin's approach. He said, you know, there's really nothing in this text that dis- disagrees anywhere, anything else is doctrinally. You know, and it is questionable whether it was in there, but he goes, it's not harmful. There's, you know, there's nothing there that, you know, you would say this is weird. All right. Now, you know, the scholars don't just sit there and read something like this and think, I don't like this. Let's say it's not part of it. Okay. That's, they're, they're applying a branch of biblical studies called textual criticism. And this is a really technical field of scholarship that is at the upper levels and requires not only the ability to read ancient languages, but the ability to read them in the kinds of ancient handwritten scripts. And it's very demanding. I mean, this is a very technical field of scholarship because they're poring over the old manuscripts and they're looking at them, they're trying to decide, is this text really in there? Was this originally there? Textual criticism is defined as the discipline where scholars evaluate both external and internal evidence and try to determine which reading is most likely the original. External evidence refers to the weighing the various manuscripts in light of their age, how widespread is their distribution, and what type text they represent. Internal evidence refers to evaluating the probabilities of what a scribe might have done, whether intentionally or unintentionally. In other words, a lot of times, you know, these are handwritten texts. So if a scribe's writing it, you know, oh, he puts this here, oh, that didn't belong there, you know, it could have, that, they have to evaluate all that to result in the various readings. Now, both internal and external evidence have to be compared and evaluated. Well, let me give you just some of the evidence that textual critics look at and they use to determine the validity of a text like this one. They would look at things like, um, this story is missing from all the Greek manuscripts of John before the 5th century. So nothing before the 5th century has this text in it. Alright, so that's, yeah, that makes you think you got the earliest scripts, it's not there, so they're like, you know, there's a good reason, maybe not. The five oldest and best copies of the Greek New Testament do not contain these verses. Now, when the verses do begin to appear in this location in John, there are asterisks or footnotes that mark them out indicating, we're not really sure if these, these verses belong here. Alright? All the earliest church fathers omit this passage in commenting on John. In other words, you look up anybody who's going through, you know, commenting, writing on the Gospel of John, they don't talk about this. They go, they pass directly from 752 to 812. And, you know, people say, well, the text flows if you read from 752 and pick it up at 812, the text flows. And it does. But I think it also flows if you stick it in there. You know, I, I don't, I don't think it makes that huge of a difference. You know, I don't think it's really disrupting anything where it is. No Eastern Church father cites the passage before the 10th century 
when dealing with the gospel. Again, so they're looking at this, they're saying, no, no one is even you know, quoting from this passage. When the story starts to appear in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, it shows up in three different places other than here. Alright, so that's a problem. I mean, sometimes it's after verse 36 of chapter 7, sometimes it's after verse 44, sometimes it's after 21-25, and sometimes it's in Luke 21-38. So the same text, it's just, you know, popping up here in the manuscript, popping up there in the manuscript. So, you know, in general, the style of the pericope is not Johannian, either in vocabulary or grammar. Now, see, that's another thing. They're looking at the grammar of this text, and they're saying, this just doesn't sound like the rest of the book. We'll look at some of that as we go along. Now, according to R. Brown, he says it is closely stylistic to Lucan material, not Johannian. So they say, this looks like something Luke wrote, you know? And here's what we need to understand. We don't possess any original autographs of the New Testament. None. Alright? Everybody understands that, right? There's no originals. Alright? we got a lot of copies. Our New Testament is based on translations of thousands of Greek manuscripts that are, for the most part, remarkably close in their readings. Now, the problem is that we don't have old and good manuscripts It's the fact that we have so many of them. See, the problem with New Testament textual criticism is we're dealing with so many manuscripts. Now, and I know this this could be discouraging to some people. They're thinking like, well, this is a text that's not in the Bible, but it's in my Bible. You know, you're messing with the text of the Word of God. You know, how do they decide what's in and what's out? They have to make these determinations, okay? But it's nothing to be discouraged about because let me just say this. We have older and better manuscripts of the New Testament than we have any other ancient writing that there is. Far more. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts alone. And not only that, but trans, the, they are, these manuscripts have been translated into other languages, like Armenian, Syriac, Egyptian, Latin, and so on. In fact, there are literally thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament Because the early church felt that the Word of God was important, so they kept copying and copying and copying into different languages. They copied texts and they circulated texts. Now, this number of New Testament manuscript is really contrasts strongly with the number of early copies of writings from other ancient writers. For example, we have about 643 copies of writings of Homer. We have eight of Herodias, nine of Euripides, seven of Plato, seven, that's it, seven from Plato, 49 from Aristotle, 20 from Tacitus. Furthermore, the earliest copy of the New Testament that we have dates to about 125 years after its composition. Whereas the earliest copy of one of these extra-biblical writings that I just talked about dates at least 400 years after composition. So the, the writings and the, the datings are so much more accurate. We have so much more information on the New Testament than we have any other writing that there is. Now compare those numbers with the manuscripts and partial manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Now these numbers I want to give you are from the Institute for New Testament Textual Research in Munster, Germany, which is uh, probably one of the most authorities on this idea. The New Testament text They say we have uh, 322 unical texts, um, 2,907 minuscule texts, 2,445 lectionary portions, 127 papyra, with a total of 5,801 manuscripts. And again, these are all handwritten copies of the New Testament or parts of the New Testament that are in libraries around the world. These things are now captured electronically. There's no other ancient book that comes close to this kind of wealth of information. Preservation. Copying. Again, they're doing it by hand. I mean, you know, most Christians have never read this book. Can you imagine copying it by hand? I mean, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into something like that. And, you know, when we talk about textual criticism, there's only two texts of any length, where the manuscript evidence is so varied that scholars question its authenticity. One of the texts is the one we're looking at today. Anybody know what the other text is? 
New Testament text that the authority of it is questioned. You should know, because we dealt with this about 10 years ago. <laughs> it's Mark 16. Okay, the end of Mark. Mark 16, 9 through 20. Textual questions about that text. And, and that one's, you know, when you read it, you're like, yeah, that, I can understand there being some questions with that one. F.F. F. Bruce says this, The variant readings about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament affects no material question of the historic fact of the Christian faith and practice. Now that, that is really important, people. Alright? You got that? You, you got to get this. There's no variant reading about which any doubt remains among textual critics of the New Testament that affects no material question of historic fact or Christian faith. In other words, these discrepancies that we find in the text, there's not one that, you know, this, it, it eliminates this doctrine or questions this doctrine or questions this history. None of them do that. Alright? They're just questioning, you know, does this really belong in this section? Or did the scribe make a mistake here when he was copying this? You know, that's why you look at earlier manuscripts, you know, because the earlier ones they say are probably more accurate, then the scribe later added something in. And sometimes scribes added stuff in on purpose. Well, I think it means, let me explain this, you know, and they'll, they'll put a little explanation there. Paul D. Wegner, in A Student's Guide to Textual Criticism of the Bible, writes this. It is important to keep in perspective the fact that only a very small part of the text is in question. He's talking about the text as a whole. Of these, most variants make little difference to the meaning of any passage. And Wegner closes his book by quoting Frederick Kenyon, who says this, It is reassuring at the end to find that the general result of all these discoveries and all this study is to strengthen the proof of the authenticity of the Scriptures. And our conviction that we have in our hands is substantial integrity, the variable Word of God. Alright, so in light of all the textual evidence, some expositors don't preach or teach this. Commentators that just skip right over it. Bob Utley writes this in his commentary. I have chosen not to comment on this passage because I do not believe it is from the pen of John and therefore not part of the inspired text, even if historical. I think that's an extreme position. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to teach this text this morning, alright? Yeah, we'll pretend it's there, alright? Because we got to keep in mind that, listen, over 900 ancient manuscripts do contain this text, including the important early so-called Western text, the Unical D. These manuscripts are labeled, they have different labels on them, Unical D. 900 ancient texts have this in it, alright? Also, most English Bibles contain this text. I mean, if you're reading your Bible, you see it in there. Alright? There's some English Bibles that, you know, if the text is questionable, they just don't put it in there. And you're reading along and you're like, well, there's a verse missing here or something, you know, because they just take it out. Now, Augustine suggested that, suggested that these verses had been removed from John because some people were offended by Yeshua's forgiveness of this woman. Let me ask you something. Does it sound unchristian? For Yeshua to forgive a woman? Why were they so afraid of this? Well, Augustine maintains that the story was always part of John's Gospel, that it was excluded from many copies because church authorities feared it would be misinterpreted to suggest that Yeshua condoned adultery. We're afraid of grace. You know, we are. It's like, oh, he might be, you know, not condemning her here. The ease with which Yeshua forgave the woman was hard to reconcile with the stern morality of an early Christian church fighting pagan debauchery and licentiousness. Sexual purity was a very foreign concept to most pagan Gentiles. So they're saying, well, we, gotta, we don't want to make it look here like the Lord's forgiven or condoning adultery, so let's pull this out of here. That was Augustine's claim. All right, And you know, I think this... I think there's some evidence to back up what Augustine says. I don't think he's just, you know, shooting from the hip here. Many ancient manuscripts that do contain this story. No, let me back up. Many manuscripts that do not contain this story. 
have a blank space between the end of what was designated as John 8.2 and the beginning of the Light of the World Discourse 8.12. In other words, there's a blank space there like, yeah, something might go here. And some of these manuscripts not only have the gap, but also have a scribal notation marks indicating a missing passage. So, you know, they have found a third century document that gives a clear reference to this story of the adulterous woman brought to Yeshua, and it uses it as a well-known example of Yeshua's mercy and gentleness. So they're using it as an example of that, but the others think, man, the church pulled this out because they didn't, you know, they don't, they're dealing with all these pagans and they don't want to think that this is okay. Even if the textual evidence, even if all textual evidence was against this passage, it doesn't mean these verses are false. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. Notice what Lazarus writes at the end of the Gospel. And there are also many other things which Yeshua did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. In other words, there's a lot of other stuff, he says, that I didn't write about. Because I didn't have room, all right? I didn't want to make this, you know, an encyclopedia, all right? Just, there's a lot of stuff that's not written down. There was a lot of incidents in the life of the Lord that they didn't attempt to tell. So the forgiveness and acceptance of an adulteress is not the kind of thing that you would expect the early church to have made up. Alright? Because again, it seemed like they were afraid. We don't want to make it look like he's condoning this. And in reality, this story describes the very reason that some of the scribes and Pharisees accused Yeshua of accepting sinners in Luke chapter 15. That's what they're accusing him. You accept sinners. Yeah. Don Carson and Bruce Mesker both think that the story probably happened. In other words, they think it's a real event in Yeshua's life. And the story circulated and later was put into the Gospel of John. Metzger says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. Carson says, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. I think it's likely, in my opinion, that this is an authentic account of an incident that happened in the life of our Lord, but was passed down, maybe through oral tradition, and later got stuck in here, or they pulled out, but again, This is really hard, I think, for us to understand, but this is really important. This was an oral culture. Okay? They told stories. They didn't like to write stuff down. There's a lot of accounts of rabbis and different people condemning people for writing stuff down. You know why? They didn't trust it if it was written down. That's hard for us because for us, if it's oral, we don't trust it. But to them, that's what they trusted, the oral. Because that was the, they sat around listening to these stories. And, and they could go on for centuries and centuries, and then someone wrote it down. So maybe they pulled this out, and the story just got passed down, and someone said, that needs to be back in there, and they stuck it back in. Or maybe Luke did write it, and someone stuck it in here. We don't really know, alright? Well, let's look at the text, and see if we can glean anything from it, alright? Let's assume it's something that happened, in the life of our Lord. Again, there's nothing in the Scripture that would make us think, oh, this couldn't be true. All right? Everyone went to his home. <laughs> That's the end. All right? That's the end of that chapter. All right? <laughs> now, everyone here seems to refer to the people that had been gathered to listen to Yeshua. He had, a, he had a crowd. That would include the Sanhedrin, the officials mentioned in 745 to 52. Um, and you know what's when these people went home, especially the members of the Sanhedrin, they must have left really frustrated. You know, they were stressed out to the max, all right? Because they can't seem to arrest or silence this rabbi, okay? And so people are just going home. Everybody went home except maybe Yeshua. It says, but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. This is the only mention of the Mount of Olives in this gospel. Again, there's a lot of things in this text that are not found anywhere else in the Gospel. And that you know, is one of the reasons textual criticism wants to say, maybe this doesn't belong there. Why didn't Yeshua go to his house? Because he was homeless. He didn't have a house. He went to the Mount of Olives and he just stayed there the night. Okay? That's hard for us to fathom. Alright? He didn't have a house. He had friends. He could have gone to a friend's house and stayed there. But he's out there in nature 
worshiping the Lord. All right? It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So, they're in the temple. Everybody goes home for the night. He comes back in the morning. He came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. And he sat down, and he began to teach him. Now, there's several expressions in this verse that are very typical of Luke. We see him in Luke, and we see him in Acts, but we don't see him in John. So, again, that's early in the morning. This is orthos. It's found in the New Testament only in Luke and Acts. It's not found anywhere else. Came and people. Came. Paraginomai is came and Laos people. They're common again for Luke and Acts. Very rare to find in John. And then he sat down and began to teach them. We see this in Matthew. We see this in Luke. We just don't see it in John. Now, the content of this verse is really closely parallel with Luke 21.38. So, again, that's what a lot of people think this was, Luke was the one who wrote this. Now, Yeshua has probably come to teach in the temple precincts early in the morning, the time of the morning sacrifice, which had been around 9 a.m., and the crowds assembled at the temple for the morning prayer service, and so he sets up and he starts to teach. Now, verse 20 gives us some additional information about the location where Yeshua is teaching in the temple precincts. All right, verse 20 says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Now, the treasury was located in the court of the women. That's where the money was collected for the poor. Now, let me ask you this who was allowed in this court? Anybody know? It's the court of the women, okay? Men and women, Jewish men. And women were allowed in this court. That's it. Okay? Gentiles could not come in here. The Gentiles were welcome to worship in the outermost court. <laughs> you get the idea as a Gentile, you come here to worship and you're like, well, you can't come in here. It's like, you stay out there in the foyer. Alright? You can't come in here because you're a Gentile. But, you know, the Jews were the people of God and the Gentiles had to come through Judaism to get to God. Alright? So they're welcome to worship in the outer court. But they were forbidden by penalty of death to enter beyond the banister into the inner courts. Josephus informs us, and there's archaeological evidence have found these plaques that were, were posted at intervals around the temple. They found them in Greek and Latin saying this, No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the banister around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. I know for us this is tough. You go to church to worship and you're like, you're staying out here, but if you come in here, you could get killed. Like, wow, I'm not going to this church again. <laughs> you know? But I mean, this is the culture then, okay? Again, you know, the Gentiles had to realize Yeshua was the Messiah of the Jews. They had to come through that, you know? So here we have no Gentiles listening to Yeshua. So this teaching he's given, there's no Gentiles there. They can't be there. They'd be killed if they got caught in there. Again, you got... You got guard, you got temple guards running around with swords in here enforcing things and making sure, you know, you remember in Acts, Paul got in big trouble because they thought he brought Timothy into the, you know, into the temple. He was a Gentile. All right. Couldn't do that. All right. So Yeshua sits down in the court of the women and he begins to teach. Now what he said, what he's teaching on, we don't even know here because Lazarus or whoever wrote this doesn't tell us. But in the midst of the teaching, you know, he's having a good time. He's teaching away. People are listening and all of a sudden this commotion erupts. And the scribes and the Pharisees drag a woman into the midst. I mean, it would be, you know, a little traumatic. You're sitting there hearing the teaching, and all of a sudden, you know, I don't think she came willingly. You know, they're dragging this lady in. And the text says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. I'd like to be this woman. Now, this is the only place in the fourth gospel where the writer mentions scribes and Pharisees together, but their association in the synoptics is really common. And this is one, one of the reasons, again, that many scholars think, well, maybe John didn't write this. Now, the scribes, the Mishnah and uh, other rabbinic sources refers to the scribes as authoritative, authoritative teachers whom ruling and legal interpretations 
were attributed. In other words, they, they looked at the Word of God and they decided this means this. They were interpreting the Scriptures. They were giving a legal ruling on it. They were often identified as members of the Sanhedrin, which was the, you know, the ruling body of the covenant people. Today we'd probably designate them as theologians. They were the theologians. They were the ones that decided this is what this means here. All right? The Pharisees, they were scholars who based their teaching on a strict interpretation of the law and who formed one of the principal religious political groups of the first century. And the thing about the Pharisees, they opposed Rome and the rule of Rome, and they refused to take an oath of allegiance to Caesar and King Herod. So they were, you know, they were radicals in that sense. Now these scribes and Pharisees, apparently from what we see from the text, they ripped this woman out of an adulterous relationship, and they drag her here to Yeshua right in the middle of the temple when he's teaching the people. How far did they bring her? I don't know. Was this woman fully clothed? We don't know. I mean, she's, you know, if they caught her in adultery, you know, she could be scantily clothed if she's clothed at all. They just grab her and drag. Come on, we got you. We're taking you in. We're going to find out what Yeshua has to say. They said to him, teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. What's weird about that claim? How do you commit adultery alone? We caught the woman in the act. My first question would be, well, then there's some got to be another party here, you know? And if you caught her in the act, you obviously caught the man too. Where is he? Where's the man? They don't bring him. Why? I think because this was a setup and the guy was involved in the setup, okay? And they kind of worked out with him, hey, you get this woman, we'll let you go, we'll take her. All right? Now, let me ask you something. Was this woman married or was she a single betrothed woman? Well, the next verse says this. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Stoning is the biblically prescribed punishment for a betrothed virgin who was sexually unfaithful to her fiancé. It's a punishment that's supposed to be meted out to both partners, but it's particularly for a betrothed woman, all right? Let's look at Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. If there is a girl who is a virgin, okay, she's engaged to a man. This is not a married woman, but their engagement was she was considered a wife, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate and the city, and you shall stone them to death. All right, so she's engaged. You're to bring them out in your stone. This is the punishment for a virgin, a betrothed virgin. Now, you notice that text says if she's in the city. Why, is, why does it say that? What's it matter where she is? Because there's another verse that talks about if she's in the country, it's a different story. Why? Because if she's in the country, she could yell and she could, it could be rape and, you know, there's no one there to hear. But in the city, if she cries rape, there'll be people around to hear her. So there's a difference here, all right, in the text. It goes on, the girl, because she did not cry out in the city. She didn't yell, obviously, or someone would have heard her. And the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Now, that's interesting, because see, it calls her a wife, but they're engaged. Because that was a binding engagement. Thus you shall purge evil from among you. Now, we read 23 and 24, but if you read verse 22... Death is prescribed for all unfaithful wives and their lovers, but it doesn't give a mode like stoning is given here. That would mean that the woman in this passage is betrothed, but not married. Now, since Jewish girls were engaged around the age of 12 or 13, this girl that they're dragging in here is a frightened teenager. 12, 13 years old, standing there, in the midst of the temple, totally humiliated, totally ashamed, totally fearful because of all that's going on. I mean, you got all these high muckety-mucks dragging her in there. And they say, caught in adultery in the very act. Now, here's what's interesting. In that day and time, it would have been very difficult to convict a person of adultery. Because in Jewish law, circumstantial evidence could not be used. For example, you say, well, look, I sat outside their house all night. I saw them go in. They stayed all night together. I saw them come out in the morning. 
It doesn't matter. That doesn't hold up in court. Well, it's, you know, I mean, they spent the night together. What do you think they were doing in there? It doesn't matter. That wouldn't hold up. They had to be caught in the act. And furthermore, this is crazy, but Jewish law said, if you caught them in the act, the motions and movements of the couple had to be unmistakably that of sexual intercourse. I mean, that's how, that's how graphic, I mean, in other words, <laughs> it was very difficult for anyone to be condemned to this particular crime. It really was. I mean, cause you had to get all the details, alright? Very few times was judgment executed because of this reason. I mean, remember, this is before cell phones or all this video equipment or all that, okay? You, you gotta catch them, alright? But this woman was caught in the act, which indicates to me it was a setup. It was a contrived case. All right, They set her up, and the man involved was let go. How else could they catch him in the very act? And if they did, how come they didn't bring the man? Because they worked it out ahead of time. Hey, you set up with this woman, and let us know, and we'll barge in and catch you in the act. We'll let you go. We'll, we'll let it slide. You won't even be brought into it. Okay? And all this, why? Okay? Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, as I said, punishment by stoning is mentioned specifically only in the case of a betrothed girl who's caught sleeping with another man. Now, the woman's accusers are misrepresenting the law here because the law states that in the case of adultery, both the man and the woman are to be put to death. Leviticus 20.10, Deuteronomy 22.23 but the law is quoted by the scribes and Pharisees said, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. And it's the feminine pronoun here. So they're saying, yeah, we're supposed to stone this woman, right? Where is the man who shares the guilt? Now, also according to the law, no one could be condemned to death without the testimony of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17, 2 through 7. And I think that since the Lord never questions their witnesses here, that the witnesses probably were there. They probably had the two or three witnesses because the Lord never said, well, you're buying the law because there's no witnesses to this. You don't have your witnesses. The Mishnah, which is the codification of Jewish law, even said this is such a serious sin, adultery, that when you catch the man, <laughs> this, here's the punishment, you catch a man in adultery, he's to be enclosed in manure up to his knees, and then a soft towel inside a rough towel tied around his neck with two people on opposite ends and they pull it until they strangle him. Now why the soft cloth inside the rough one? They didn't want to leave any marks because to them this punishment was being given by God. So therefore there was no man-made marks. That's how they carried it out. I don't really understand the standing and manure to your knees, (laughs) but... Anyway, they would strangle him to death. Okay, so that, the, biblically, we got strangling, you know, for adultery. We got stoning to death. Neither one sounds very pleasant, but that's how they took it seriously. Alright, they did. Well, why did the Pharisees bring this woman to Yeshua? Because they're the moral police and they're out there, you know, wanting to make sure everybody lives right? No. They, they didn't care about this woman. They didn't care about her sin. They did it to trap Yeshua. Alright? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. All right, so they just they want to trap Yeshua. This was just a trap, plain and simple. We got to get a woman. We got to get some because we're gonna we're gonna nail him to the wall. See, and, and when they brought this woman, they're all grinning because they thought we got him cornered. Now there's no way out. All right, if Yeshua does not condemn the woman to death under Mosaic law. He's a false prophet. And the people will turn from him because he is rejecting Moses in the law. Because it's very clear in the Mosaic law what has to happen. But, if he does condemn her to death, we got him too. Because we're under Roman rule, and under Roman rule, it's not permittable to put someone to death. That's Rome's job. So we'll get him for fostering rebellion against Roman powers and saying we ought to take the, the power to put this woman to death. Only Rome had that power. Now, you know, they stoned Stephen to death, but ordinarily Roman did, Rome did not permit the Jews to execute people. That's why the Jews took Yeshua to Rome and said, you got, you got to do something with this guy. All right? Rome had that right for themselves. 
Now, treason against Rome was a capital offense, punishable by crucifixion. So they just figure, we got it. He's no way out. And, and if he condemned her to death, they also, I think, probably felt that, you know, okay, he had a reputation for being gracious and forgiving. So if he condemns her, hey, you know, this guy acts like he's so forgiving. See, he's not. Now, they had set traps for Yeshua in the past. Matthew 19, they questioned him about divorce. And in Mark 12, they questioned him on the taxes paid to Rome. You know, they, they bring him these things and they think, you know, there's no way he's going to get out of this. They thought they had him. No matter what he says, it'll be wrong. It's like the question, anybody ever asked your question, are you still beating your wife? There's no right answer to that question, okay? You can't say yes and you can't say no. All right? And that's where they, they, they got him right here. Okay, we got you. You say yes, stoner, we'll turn you over to Rome. You say no, the people will reject you. But instead of answering them, it says, but Yeshua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. They're like, okay, we got you. Now, you know what's interesting here? This is the only thing that the Bible ever records Yeshua writing. And we don't have a clue what it is. (laughs) Most Bible scholars, most Bible teachers write stuff. Okay? Our Lord never wrote anything other than this. Now the verb here, katagrapho, is in the past tense, wrote. And it allows for writing words, drawing pictures, or making signs. What is he writing in the dirt? Again, anybody that tells you what he's writing, it's a guess, okay? Because we don't know the Bible, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of guesses out there, okay? Some scholars have suggested that he's writing down the sins of those who accuse the woman. You know, he's writing out the Mosaic Law, you know? I'm like, I don't think there's that much dirt there for him to write all those things, okay? But one of the things that I really like, a long-standing interpretation of the church, has been that he wrote part of Jeremiah 17.13. And as we look at this, I think you'll understand why the church came up with this interpretation. Oh, Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Alright, these are the leaders have forsaken the Lord. They're going to be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yahweh. you understand why they came up with that interpretation? If he's writing this passage, and some say he's writing this passage to comfort the distraught woman. Because Jeremiah 17, 13-18 is a likely passage. It offers comfort and it links this incident to writing on the earth and the declaration of living water, which all fit in our text really well. But again, it's, it's just a guess. Now, the context of our text and 9, 13 through 16 suggests that this is a Sabbath when this is happening, okay? Remember, we ended at the temple on the seventh day, you know, the, they left after the last day of the feast. The next day was a Sabbath. So if this is the Sabbath, you know what? It was forbidden to write on the Sabbath. But it was only forbidden to write if it left a lasting mark. According to Mishnah Shabbat 12.5, writing with fruit juice (laughs) or in the sand or dirt was permitted. I'm not sure how you write with fruit juice. (laughs) I think of, you know, those little squeezy, maybe you're taking it and you're writing. I I don't know what they're talking about there, but, but see that this is, this is what they did to the law. Okay. The Mishnah Shabbat 12.5, you could write as long as it didn't leave a lasting mark. So Yeshua is really not violating, according to them, he's not violating Sabbath by writing here. But you notice it specifically says that he wrote with his finger. Does that bring to your mind anything? The Ten Commandments were wrote, written with the finger of God. Some say, you know, God wrote the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant Law. Here Yeshua is giving New Covenant Law. Maybe, I don't know, I'm sure there's some allusions there. Uh, it's interesting, for sure. But he's writing in the dirt. But when they persisted in asking him, in other words, he, he doesn't answer him. He just bends down and he starts writing. And so they continue to ask. They wanted an answer so they could trap him. And so he stands up and he says to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Now, this is a direct reference to Deuteronomy 13.9. 
and 17.7, which says that the witnesses of a crime must be the first to throw the stones. Okay, so you can't blame somebody and, you know, if you're going to blame them, you're going to kill them. You got it? You're going to be actively involved in this, all right? The first to blame them gets involved in the stoning. They had to be participants. So, Yeshua didn't mean here that his accusers need to be sinless. And a lot of people say that, you know, he's without sin. They're saying these guys thought they were sinless. That's not what he's talking about. The law didn't require that. They had to be innocent of the particular sin they're accusing them of. And they needed to be free from the sin of adultery, in other words, and at least free from complicity in prearranging the woman's adultery. In other words, they can't be involved in this. If they set this thing up, how are they, you know, not guilty of something? Instead of passing judgment on the woman, he passes judgment on on her judges. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. So he gets up and he says, hey, if you're without sin, throw the first stone. And he goes back to writing. And they're like, so they're left with their thoughts and what are we going to do here? And you know what happens? When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones and he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Why did the older ones leave first? Because old people have more sense than young people. (laughs) Can I get an amen out of some of you older people? (laughs) I'm just kidding, all right. Being older, they had sinned more also, okay? (laughs) They've been around to sin more. The oldest and wisest Pharisees, they're the first to understand he's turning the trap around. He's trying to trap us. And they may have reasoned this, okay? If we stone her, the Romans are going to say, why'd you stone her? You're not allowed to put people to death. And we'll say, well, Yeshua told us to do it. But he'll say, no, I didn't. I said, let those without sin do it. And everyone knows we're not without sin because Yeshua's been accusing us of sin over and over. So they saw themselves in a trap. And so, they're going to get accused of doing this on their own authority, which puts them in trouble with Rome. So, here, listen, Yeshua neither authorizes the stoning, nor He contradicts the law. So, their trap they set for Him fell apart. There's no way for them to recover from this trap, except just walk away and be discredited in front of the people. Because they, they didn't know what to do. We can't kill her. If we do that, we're in trouble. He was left alone. Did everybody go? I think this is implying that his critics departed. You know, I think his disciples are still there. The woman's obviously still there. And I think the people who gathered for the teaching, they're not leaving, but the, the ones that are accusing her, they're definitely gone. They just took off because it's like, hey, we, we got to get out of here because, you know, we got ourselves in a hole here. Verse 11 says, straightening up, Yeshua said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Yeshua said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. Let me ask you something. How can Yeshua forgive this adulterous woman who was caught in the act? I think it was a setup. But she's guilty, okay? She was involved in this, alright? Is Yeshua condoning adultery here? He just doesn't, he doesn't condemn her. He just says, I don't condemn you. If God is a God of righteousness and a God of justice and a God of judgment by His nature, then this woman should die. You agree with that? You got to do this. Yes. You got to do this. But if God is a God of love and a God of grace and a God of kindness and a God of mercy, this woman should live, right? Yeah. Okay. So how do you deal with that? How do you harmonize these two things? Let me ask you this. Who is it that is not condemned? This is not a trick question because we just talked about this last week. All right? Thank you, Veronica. Christians are not condemned, right? It's believers. We're we're not condemned. If Yeshua says, this woman, I do not condemn you, I think it's because she had trusted Him. 
I mean, she's dragged in front. Of, she knew who Yeshua was. Everybody in the around there knew who he was. He had caused such a stir. Everyone knew him. And so she knew who he was, and now she's dragged in front of this rabbi, and she's afraid of death, and he's got nothing but kindness for her, nothing but love. He's protecting her. I think she must have trusted him. The ultimate reason he could exempt her from condemnation is that he was going to soon take her condemnation. The justice of God is going to be satisfied. And she is going to die in Christ as a believer. So God's justice, His righteousness, His holy nature is satisfied in the punishment of Christ. He's going to take her condemnation. Romans 8, one we looked at last week, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I believe this woman trusted Him. And listen, if Yeshua didn't condemn her, then neither did the Father because He always did those things that pleased the Father. He only said and did what the Father said and did. Remember what we saw back in the prologue, 117. For the law was given through Moses. We understand that, right? But watch, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua. And what we see here with this adulterous woman is an illustration of that. We see grace and truth. They brought the law. Under the law, this woman should be put to death. And that's true. But we see grace and truth. And as Yeshua said, or as Yahweh said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And He chooses to have compassion on this woman. It is God's privilege. It is His delight to show grace to undeserving sinners. That's what grace is all about. None of us deserve it. I do not condemn you either. Go from now on sin no more. Now what I want you to notice here, Yeshua does not say, go your way, sin no more, and I won't condemn you. That's not what He says. He says, I don't condemn you either. Go and don't sin anymore. See, her pardon was not dependent on her behavior. Her pardon was the motivation for her changed behavior. I'm not condemning you either. Go. Don't sin anymore. Stop sinning. This betrothed woman, having been caught in adultery, would have lost everything. Her husband would have you know, written her a bill of divorcement. Her family would have disowned her. She was humiliated in the temple. You know, All her structure, social structure, would have collapsed because of this. She would have been condemned as an outcast by the society she lived in. But she receives grace and mercy from Yeshua. And that's the difference, people. You know, and, and I, I think way too often in Christianity, we're quick to condemn. We know the law. What you're doing is sin. Okay? And I, I think we are supposed to hold each other accountable. But we can't condemn one another. All right? I think we are point, you know, if you are in a relationship with someone close enough that you have that freedom to talk to them, I think you should say, well, what you're doing is wrong according to scripture. But too often we don't even confront people. We don't deal with them. We just condemn them from a distance. And we don't see that in our Lord. Now, of course, I think, you know, I really do believe that she had trusted him and that's why he was saying she's not condemned. But I think as Christians, we would make far more progress with people if we started loving them where they were and try to get them to understand the gospel other than, you know, we come across as so arrogant, so condemning at times that no one wants to hear anything about what we have to say because they just think Christianity is, they're hateful bigots. They don't like anything, you know. And it's not about us. I mean, the scriptures tell us what we, what is right and what is wrong. And I think that's definitely our you know, rule, that's what we live by. But what I like to tell people is when you're reading the Scripture, it's talking to you. How many times have you read the Bible? It's, oh, that's a good verse for so-and-so. You ever done that? How come we're good at finding verses for so-and-so, but we're not so good at... How come it doesn't speak to us? How come we don't say, boy, that's the verse I needed. That's me. Don't, don't read the Bible for somebody else. That's their job. 
Okay? You read the Bible for you. Let God speak to you as you read the Scriptures. All right, so whether this text is, is legitimate, whether it's not, it sure doesn't violate anything we see in Scripture. And I think it paints a great picture of our Lord that we see in many other places of just caring for people. He loves people. He cares for people. And he's dealing with these religious rulers in a way that this absolutely frustrating them to death, you know, because they can't trap them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you just for the opportunity to look at it. I pray that you would give us wisdom, Lord, as we approach the scripture. We desire, Lord, to learn of you. We desire to walk in fellowship with you, to see you in every situation, to trust you in every situation. Lord, help us to demonstrate the love of our Lord to the people we come in contact with on a daily basis. Lord, if we're going to be accused of things, help us to be accused of we love people too much. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen.